On April 10, 1970, Apollo 13 was cleared for flight after Lieutenant Commander Thomas K. Mattingly II, feared to have the measles, was replaced on the crew by civilian backup pilot John L. Swiger Jr., joining astronauts James A. Lovell Jr. and Fred W. Hayes Jr. Harry A. Blackman, a U.S. appeals court judge from Minnesota, was reported to be President Nixon's choice to be his next Supreme Court Justice nominee. Gene Littler and Bert Yancey were the co-leaders after the second round of the Masters. And in Cleveland, Ohio, Jerry Rubin was in town promoting his new book, Do It, and being interviewed at TV station WEWS by Dorothy Fuldheim. The contentious interview had run about two minutes when Fuldheim had had enough and ordered Rubin off the stage. Where have you gone, Dorothy Fuldheim? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Dorothy Fuldheim was born on June 26, 1893, in Passaic, New Jersey, as Dorothy Violet Snell. She died on November 3, 1989, in Cleveland, Ohio. In 1918, she married Milton H. Fuldheim in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milton was born in Cleveland in 1883. He died on August 7, 1952, and Dorothy remarried William L. Ulmer, in 1953. They remained married until his death on January 18, 1971. Dorothy Fuldheim interviewed a stunning array of personalities during her career, including every United States president from Franklin Roosevelt to Ronald Reagan and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Helen Hayes, Helen Keller, Jane Fonda, and Jimmy Hoffa, to name only some. She was a guest on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson multiple times from 1978 to 1983 and on talk shows hosted by Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, and Jack Parr. She wrote four books from 1966 to 1976. Besides her own books, Fuldheim's story is recounted in several other books. She is the subject of Dorothy Fuldheim, the first First Lady of Television News, by Patricia M. Mote. Fuldheim may be best known for kicking Jerry Rubin off an interview on April 10, 1970. The interview at Cleveland's WEWS-TV was about two minutes old when she booted Rubin out after repeated provocation, including calling the police pigs. She said it was the first time in her 23 years at WEWS she had done such a thing. Dorothy Fulltime is honored with an Ohio historical marker at 3001 Euclid Avenue, outside TV station WEWS. It was placed there in 2003. It notes some of her most memorable of over 15,000 interviews, and that she was on the air from 1947 until 1984, when she was 91 years old.
We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now, back to the episode. If you're a Clevelander of a certain age, you grew up with Dorothy Fuldheim. If you're not a Clevelander, you may have seen her on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It's just as likely you have never heard of her. A 1934 trip to Germany and Italy gave Fuldheim the opportunity, which she seized, to interview Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. These interviews made up part of the background, giving Fuldheim credibility in her speaking engagements and radio work. On any given day in the early 1940s, you might have seen Fuldheim's name in one of the Cleveland newspapers. On January 9, 1940, she was mentioned in Cleveland's newspaper, The Plain Dealer. Fuldheim was to be the speaker in the second of a series of talks to the Women's City Club. On February 13, 1940, an ad among the movie listings reads, Colony, Tomorrow, Matinee Only. In addition to regular screen program, book review, Dorothy Fuldheim reviewing Brothers in the West by Robert Reynolds. Doors open 1.30 p.m., review at 2 p.m., on the screen, matinee and evening, Nelson Eddy and Ilona Massey in Balalaika. How would you like to go to a movie theater today and see a live book review rather than the canned promotional pap and advertisements? Ten years after she was hired by WEWS-TV, Dorothy added to her newscasts and commentaries with a weekday midday program. The One O'Clock Club was tailor-made for Dorothy full-time. Her experience as an interviewer, lecturer, and book reviewer made her well-suited to host the live program with a live audience. The show was co-hosted by another Cleveland broadcasting legend, Bill Smoochie Gordon. The One O'Clock Club premiered on WEWS on August 26, 1957, up against movie reruns on TV3 and TV8. The competition changed in 1961 when the Mike Douglas Show went on the air on TV3. Mike Douglas became a star himself and made the jump from a local to a national stage. By September 1963, the Mike Douglas Show was in syndication and WEWS dropped out of the competition and canceled its live 1 o'clock show. There are four books by Dorothy Fuldheim, one biography of Fuldheim, and other books with chapters about Fuldheim. I dare not review her books here, but I will talk about her first two books now and the second two later in the show. Her first book was I Laughed, I Cried, I Loved, A News Analyst's Love Affair with the World published in 1966. The bottom of the title page shows that the book was published by the World Publishing Company, Cleveland and New York. Above the words in the company logo, a tree in a circle with W to the left of the trunk and P to the right. 
The company was founded in 1902 and remained in business until 1980. World published Ball Four by Jim Bouton, edited by Leonard Schechter, Overkill and Megalove by Norman Corwin, and books by Myron Cope, Michael Crichton, Robert Ludlam, Norman Mailer, Anne Rand, Rex Stout, Gay Talese, and others. Her second book, Where Were the Arabs?, also published by World, came on the heels of the Six-Day War in 1967. Days after the end of the war, Foldheim traveled to the Middle East to report on the battle between Israel and Jordan, Syria, Egypt, between June 5 and 10 in 1967, a historic turning point in the history of Israel and its relations with its neighbors. Where Were the Arabs in Terms of Pages? was her slightest book. It was 110 pages. But it serves as a snapshot in time of an important event that remains significant today. In three books about notable women in television, Fuldheim is pictured on the cover of all three. In 1997's Women Pioneers in Television, Carrie O'Dell wrote that Dorothy Fuldheim ruled Cleveland TV with her tart-tongued news commentaries no-nonsense interviews, and her own brand of performance journalism for over 35 years, longer than any other individual in history. 2001's Indelible Images, Women of Local Television, edited by Mary E. Beadle and Michael D. Murray, is a collection of articles by different writers, including Dr. Margaret Finnecane, who writes about full-time. In her conclusion, she writes... Dorothy Fuldheim's lasting impact on television news and the local Cleveland market can never be truly measured. She quotes Barbara Walters, who said, Dorothy Fuldheim was the first woman to be taken seriously doing the news. Invisible Stars by Donna Halper was also published in 2001, with a second edition published in 2014. There are pictures of eight women on the cover of the second edition, including one of Dorothy Fuldheim. After a short break, I will be joined by Donna Halper as Where Have You Gone, Dorothy Fuldheim continues. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Dr. Donna Halper is Associate Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's the author of Invisible Stars, a Social History of Women in American Broadcasting. She has also written Boston Radio, 1920-2010, and Icons of Talk, The Media Mouths That Changed America. For more than 10 years, she has contributed to several publications from the Society for American Baseball Research, better known as Sabre. And she is credited with discovering the progressive rock band Rush, while she was at WMMS in Cleveland in 1974. Donna, welcome to Where Have You Gone, Dorothy Foldheim. 
What a pleasure to be on your show, and what a pleasure to talk about Dorothy. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk first about Invisible Stars. It was first published in 2001, with a second edition published in 2014. Why did you write the book, and what did you and do you want people to know about women in American broadcasting? Well, first of all, part of why I wrote the book had to do with my own career. And I'm not trying to make this about me, but I mean, (laughs) I got into radio at a time when very few women were on the air. I mean, yes, they were on the air doing cooking shows. They were on the air doing shows about family and recipes and stuff like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but those were called women's shows under the stereotypical belief that that's all women were interested in. I wanted to be a rock and roll DJ. I loved radio from the time I was a kid. And when I finally got on the air at my college station, and I say finally because it took four years to persuade the powers that be at the station that it was okay for a woman to be on the air and that somehow the Republic wouldn't fall, When I finally persuaded the powers that be in 1968, I was the first woman in the history of Northeastern University to ever be on the air. And that made me wonder, who were some of the other women that were on the air? There had to be some. They couldn't all be doing cooking shows. There had to be another DJ. And I went to the history textbooks and nothing. And... I made a promise to myself, and I also made a promise to my favorite rock and roll DJ, a guy by the name of Arnie Ginsberg. Now, I know what you're thinking. Arnie's a guy. Um, yeah, but back then there was a myth that you had to have a deep voice to be on the radio, and that one of Mm -hmm. the reasons women couldn't be on the radio was we didn't have deep voices. Well, the number one DJ in Boston at that time was Arnie Ginsberg, and he didn't have a deep voice either. In fact, he talked like that. He had a very high squeaky voice, and he made fun of it. He joked about it. He called himself old aching adenoids, old leather lungs. I loved him. And I said to myself, if Arnie can do it, I can do it. And I made a promise, like I said, that I would not only tell the story of who my mothers were if I could just find them, but that I would also make sure I acknowledged Arnie for encouraging me to kind of go your own way. So what if you don't have a big, deep voice? If you got a good personality, you can do it. So over the years, I researched women in broadcasting and found that they had been written out of history. There were women radio announcers from 1920 onward, and I became determined to tell their stories. And I have spent my life telling their stories. And I have written a number of those women back into history, and I'm glad that I did. And I also wrote a book about Boston Radio and put Arnie Ginsberg on the cover. So I kept my promise to Arnie, and I kept my promise to tell the stories of women in broadcasting who were there from the beginning as announcers, as radio station owners, in a couple of cases as engineers, and a variety of other jobs, some stereotypical and gendered for, you know, the way the culture was back then, but others not. Um, I write about Eunice Randall. 
Eunice was the first woman radio announcer in Boston, and she may have been the first in the entire East, because I have her traced back to 1919. And she was the story lady, which women were supposed to be, but she also read the traffic reports, and yes, they had just started doing them. She read news, she reported on current events, and when guests didn't show up, she sang, because you had to do everything back then. Radio was mm -hmm. live. Long story short, there are so many women, including Dorothy, who were kind of written out of history in both radio and television, and it has been my life's work to not only tell their stories, but to make sure their contributions are not forgotten. I'm reminded of the saying that history is written by the winners. It seems like for a long time, I guess, history was written by the men. And thankfully, we've, we've come around to a time where there's more access. I mean, what we're doing here right now could not have been done 10, 15, 20 years ago. And maybe more access has uh, resulted in a more balanced telling of the history and of all these great stories of the women that you talk about in Invisible Stars. I think we're also looking at not just changing attitudes, but new generations who were not apprenticed into some of the beliefs and the myths of the past. Like, take the high squeaky voice myth, and it is a myth, um, mm -hmm. about, well, women don't have a voice that men would want to listen to. Yeah, we do. Okay, we get there's there are plenty of women who sound wonderful on the air, and there are plenty of women who don't. But ditto for men. There are plenty of men who sound wonderful on the air, and plenty of men who don't. But way back in the 1920s, the microphones, the early carbon microphones, distorted people's voices, both men and women, and it drove your voice up. So if you had a deep and resonant voice, you had no problem. And that also, interestingly enough, excluded a lot of guys because there were a lot of guys who didn't have a deep enough voice. But anyway, that's where that custom came from, from the 1920s. And yet for decades after that, it became almost like a truism. That, oh, nobody would want to listen to a woman on the air except maybe on a women's show. But as time changed, and as the generations changed, there started to be more acceptance of people with different kinds of voices. It wasn't just Arnie Ginsberg that became popular for having a different kind of voice. Pretty soon, in general, it was about personality rather than voice. And I think that voice quality certainly matters. I hope I still sound okay, and I'm sure you do too. But the reality is, if we didn't have a good personality, People wouldn't listen to us no matter how our voices were. So I think people started learning that it is more about personality. And the younger generation coming up was like, well, why can't I be on the radio? And as times changed, people's attitudes changed. And I'm glad to see it. I've never wanted to get a job because I'm a woman. I just never wanted to be excluded from a job because I'm a woman. If I'm talented, hire me. If I'm not, don't. And I think that's how a lot of women from generations past and generations present have felt. And as I said, it is the honor of my life 
to be able to tell their stories. It's also the honor of my life to be able to have lived long enough to see attitudes change. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when a woman who wanted to cover hard news like politics, overseas news, people looked at that woman like, what? Why do you want to do that? Today, we have all kinds of women in the press room covering the press conferences of the president from every generation now. You have people that are like, oh, younger reporters, older reporters, men, women. It no longer matters. And it's so cool to have lived to see that time when someone can just apply and if they're qualified, they get hired. How nice is that? And there's so much in there that uh, relates to Dorothy Fuldheim because she certainly had the personality. And on the second edition of uh, Invisible Stars, she's the first woman pictured. Why do you feel she rates such a prominent position? Because she was a master or a mistress, if you prefer, of reinvention. Okay. A lot of people remember Dorothy if they grew up in Cleveland. They remember some of the stuff she did on TV. But as a media historian, I was fascinated by how she embraced the images of her culture back in the 1920s and 30s. Okay, fine, you were supposed to be a teacher, so she became a teacher. Okay, you were supposed to love literature, she loved literature. But she not only embraced that, she also pushed against it. She wanted to be on the radio. And she started off on the radio giving educational talks, which women were, okay, you could give an educational talk. So she gave educational talks on a station called WTAM in Cleveland. She talked about literature, but gradually she found that she could reenact. She could bring history to life. All radio is live back then. So she takes some of the famous people of that day and she reenacts them. She does kind of like a show like the March of Time, you know, which Time Magazine sponsored. She didn't do the March of Time, but she did sort of a local version where she took famous people in the news and reenacted what they had done. She kind of made the news more user friendly. So on the one hand, she was being traditional because women were supposed to be educators. But on the other hand, she was being a broadcaster. She was being a performer. She was being a personality. So she's doing that in the early 30s. By the late 30s, she's got a news show. Now she's a world traveler. She goes everywhere. She's been to Europe. She's been to Spain. She's observed what's happening in Germany. And she's speaking all over Cleveland. Hundreds of people are coming to hear her. And then she's going on the radio. She does a program on WJW and on the NBC Blue Network. She does a program called The World's Goings On. What was happening all over the world. She became known as the speaker with a thousand subjects. If it was happening in current events, Dorothy could talk about it. So here we have a woman who lived in a time where women's roles were very restricted, and yet she embraced, pushed against, and made it her own, such that when television came along, she was already a well-known fixture. 
she was widely known, not just in Cleveland, but like I said, she was now on the NBC radio network and she was able to reinvent herself yet again. Now keep in mind, she's in her 40s when this is happening, said Donna, who's 74 and who got her PhD when she was 64. So here we have a woman, Dorothy Fulltime, and I am by no means comparing myself. I'm just saying there's a lot of us out there that have been masters or mistresses of reinvention. And Dorothy goes from giving a lot of lectures and filling lecture halls to reenacting the news to doing her own radio news show to getting on the NBC network and then television comes to Cleveland in late 47. She goes on television and she starts doing a news commentary program, reinventing herself yet again. So yeah, when I did the research about her, I said, wow, what an amazing life. And she's in her late 40s when she reinvents herself yet again at a time when, oh my God, women who are like almost 50, they can't reinvent. And she's like, why not? Nothing stopped this woman. She was relentless. She knew everybody. She talked to everybody. She liked people. She understood the news. And she was able to have a career that started traditionally and ended up as a pathfinding, groundbreaking sort of person, she was able to do stuff that other women weren't doing. And to some degree, I think she becomes a role model for other women. Well, you mentioned her tenacity, and I'm just wondering, because you've had such a long career in broadcasting, and her timing couldn't have been better because you might say the rules had not been set and television was just starting out. She had all the background that you mentioned. Today, do you think with being female, being in her 50s, would be able to launch the career that she had from that point forward if she was launching it today? I think she would have. Because again, you used a good word, tenacity, okay? There are some people that just don't quit. They don't wanna be put out to pasture. They don't wanna be told they're not relevant anymore. Today, one of the gifts the baby boomers have given people, and we can all have conversations about, oh my God, the baby, okay, boomer. Yeah, I know. And yet, and yet, the baby boomers gave society one great gift. We pushed against the idea that there are certain ages when you can do stuff. And if you haven't done it by that age, too bad, too late. We pushed against that. When I mentioned that I went back to school and got my PhD at age 64, a lot of people said, oh, you'll never. I started when I was 55. It took me nine years because I could only go part-time. I was working full-time. And again, this isn't just about me. Along the way, I met so many people who said to me, wow, I've always wanted to do X. And I would be like, well, why don't you? You know, I mean, agreed. Maybe you won't be a brain surgeon if you're 70. Maybe not. There's a whole bunch of other people you can still meet. There's a whole bunch of other opportunities you could create. And I'm seeing more and more people reinventing themselves in their 40s, in their 50s. I'm a professor, as you know, and some of my students are adult learners. 
There are people in their 40s and 50s, in some cases 60s, who never got a degree and who always kind of wanted to. There are people starting to do podcasts, so maybe they're not going to be on the NBC affiliate. But hey, that doesn't mean they can't broadcast. There are people that are writing a novel. There are people that are writing music. There are people that are doing all kinds of stuff. And today, it is no longer considered like, oh God, you're too old for that. Today, it's considered you're only as young as you feel. If you've got the qualifications and you've got the desire, give it a shot. The worst thing that'll happen is you won't succeed. But the best thing that'll happen is at least you'll know you went for it. I'm a cancer survivor, okay? My grandmother, who I never met, died at the age of 44 from the same cancer that I had, and I'm 74. My point is, medical advances within two generations have been saving so many lives that if my grandmother were around today, she'd probably still be around today, is my point. Mm -hmm. But honest to God, as a media historian, I look at people who died at the age of 50 from things that today, they'd still be here. Mm -hmm. And you're asking about would Dorothy be able to, sure she would. She would be able to keep on keeping on well into her 90s if she still lived. The truth is, I am living proof of the fact that some things that only a generation and a half ago were a death sentence are not anymore. So I really want to say to your audience one more time, whatever is going on for you in your life health-wise, take care of it, get it treated, but don't let it stop you from trying whatever. Don't let it stop you from pursuing your dream because nobody knows how long they've got, says Donna, who used to be a chaplain. Nobody knows how long they've got. And however long you've got, make the most of it. That's what Dorothy did. That's what I'm trying to do. And in terms of making the most of it, the other thing now, as I mentioned with the technology, you're not beholden to the local radio station or a network or whichever gatekeepers you want to mention. You invest in a, in a laptop and a microphone, and the next thing you know, you might have a blockbuster podcast. Or in some cases, you may get that job on your local station. There's no way mm-hmm. of predicting. I know people who are still in broadcasting in their 60s, in their 70s. You may have heard of a guy named Tom Foti, F-O-T-Y. And he's been in broadcasting since the 60s, and he's still there. I know a number of folks who have had long careers, and they're still doing it. And whether they're doing it by podcast or webcast, or whether they're still on the air locally, doesn't matter. You're still given that great opportunity while you see a chance, take it. And I keep thinking of a young woman named Dorothy Violet Snell, Mm -hmm. raised in Milwaukee. And I wonder if she realized as she went to school to be a teacher, which she was probably told that's all she could be, not that there's anything wrong with that. But I wonder if she realized way back then that someday 
she would be a household name and that she would be one of the most admired women in the United States, according to a Gallup poll. She was yep. still on the air in the 1980s. She was born in 1893. So you want to talk about somebody who didn't let anything stop her? Go and do thou likewise. And you mentioned a little bit of her reaching beyond Cleveland in, in her radio days. I'm sure she had opportunities to go to a more national, you know, a bigger platform than Cleveland. Do you think she was wise to stay here where she was such a dominant personality? I love Boston. I was away from Boston for, oh my God, 10, 12 years doing broadcasting out of state in Cleveland, in New York, in Washington, D.C. But it was so excellent to come home. It was so excellent to be back where my family and my friends were. I wonder if people like Dorothy found a place where they felt comfortable, found a place where they knew everybody and everybody knew them. And yeah, they could have gone to New York or they could have gone to pick a city. But if you're happy in a certain place and you can still do the things you want to do and get on the network and be heard from coast to coast, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you're happy in your community, if you're happy in your hometown, which I get the impression she was, she was so plugged in to local charities, to local churches and synagogues, to local civic organizations. My God, she could fill an entire hall. I, I read an article about her, uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is digitized, by the way. The Cleveland mm -hmm. Plain Dealer had a wonderful um, media reporter named Robert Stephan, S-T-E-P-H-A-N. Mm -hmm. Love him to bits and pieces read everything he used to write. The guy was a legend. When he passed, thousands of people came to his funeral, okay? He was that beloved. But he wrote about Dorothy, and he wondered a couple of times why she didn't leave Cleveland. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, Bobby, for the same reason you didn't leave. I'm sure you got offers from, like, New York newspapers all the time. But Cleveland was your home. It's what mm -hmm. you loved, just like I love Boston. So I have the feeling that, yeah, Dorothy could have gone elsewhere. And she did. She was a world traveler. She went to all kinds of places. But isn't it good to know you got a home to come back to? And that's why I think she stayed in Cleveland, because for her, it was home. You, you've mentioned reinvention, and uh, I don't know if it's exactly reinvention, but in the past 10-plus years, uh, you've gotten very active in the Society for American Baseball Research. Tell me how that happened, and in particular, tell us about Ina Eloise Young. Oh, sure. Well, there again, that's just me keeping my promise. So I've been a baseball fan since I was a kid. There's a new book out about Bob Murphy, and Bob Murphy, of course, was the Mets broadcaster for, oh my God, five decades. Right. And I have a chapter in it called Murphy Before the Mets, because it turns out he was on the air in Boston. And when I was growing up, 
the broadcasting team was Kurt Gowdy and Bob Murphy. And I was one of those girls who was different from the other girls and different as in I liked things that girls stereotypically did not like. I just liked them. I'm sorry. You know, and one of them was baseball. And I was a big fan. Used to listen all the time on my little transistor radio. I loved the sportscasters, wanted to be one, got told that girls absolutely couldn't do that. And when I got into radio and had my radio career, I didn't think much about writing baseball because I really got told I couldn't do it. And I did finally break through and have a broadcasting career as a DJ and a music director and then a consultant. But years later, along comes the internet. And I'm reading stories online about various historical baseball figures. And I'm asking the same question I asked when I was doing the research for Invisible Stars. All of these people are guys. Now, I know that the players were all guys, but what about the sports writers? Were they all guys? And I couldn't find very much about women sports writers. And so I embarked upon a journey, as I often do, because I love to do research. And that's how, thanks to a couple of other women who had just started, who were asking some of the same research questions I was asking, and had just started researching the lives of a couple of people, that's how I came upon Ina Eloise Young. And Ina Eloise Young was probably the first woman beat reporter. She was not the first woman sports reporter. There was a woman way back in 1890 who seems to have reported on sports for one season. Ina reported on them for 12 years, and she was so well-respected in her day, which was from about 1900 to 1912, she was so respected that her newspaper sent her to cover the World Series. Her stuff got syndicated everywhere. And it is my pleasure that I was able to tell her story. Her newspaper had never been digitized. So I hired a researcher who went into the public library. God bless public libraries. Let's give it up for public libraries. Not everything is digitized. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize just how important libraries are. And in the library in her hometown, she was able, the researcher that I hired, was able to find all kinds of articles that she had written covering baseball, sent them to me. I mean, I paid for them, but you know, she sent them along. And mm -hmm. I was able to reconstruct what it was like being a woman baseball reporter. And I was able to contact the college she went to. And I mean, I just did what researchers do until I could tell the story of her life. And then I got in touch with Sabre and said, hey, you know all of the people you have articles about, would you like an article about a woman beat writer? And they were like, absolutely. And so I sent it along. I write regularly for the Sabre Bio Project. I've also written chapters for a number of Sabre books. I never would have been able to do it if it weren't for the internet. Not because I wouldn't have been able to do my research. I'm kind of old school about research. I really do mm -hmm. enjoy libraries. But yeah, it has made my life a lot simpler 
that I can now find digitized articles about various people and combined with the actual in the library research that I've done, I can reconstruct the lives of all kinds of people. So if you uh, just go on the Google and look for my name, Donna Halper, and Ina Eloise Young, my Sabre bio of her will come up along with a whole bunch of other Sabre bios that I've written. Uh, my expertise is not just in women broadcasters, but also African-American broadcasters and just interesting radio firsts, whether they pertain to women and minorities or not. Just the stories that deserve to be told and that don't deserve to be forgotten. So yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm writing for Sabre, but I've been a fan since I was a kid. And you've touched on the heart of what we're trying to do with this podcast, to talk about people and places that are gone but not forgotten in many cases, or are too much forgotten and deserve to be better remembered. Certainly, Ina Eloise Young is one of those people, and so is Dorothy Fuldheim. Donna, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about Dorothy Fuldheim. Oh, you kidding me? What a privilege. I am so glad for your doing what you're doing. I'm so glad for your podcast and for the opportunity to tell stories like this. And I hope at some point I can come back and tell a couple of other stories because no kidding, what you are doing is so important. And I'm not saying that because yeah, yeah, Donna, you know, you're on the podcast, so therefore. No, I say this all the time. These are people who contributed to us. We are standing on their shoulders Shouldn't we at least say thank you? So thank you for this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you, Dorothy, full-time for being such an inspirational figure in broadcasting. Dorothy, full-time, you deserve to be remembered. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast, or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. 1970 came 23 years after Dorothy Fuldheim began at WEWS and 14 years before her retirement in 1984. She was a respected news person and had made her mark in broadcasting history, but two events within a matter of weeks stand out in her career. First, there was the Jerry Rubin incident on April 10. Less than a month later, the shootings at Kent State took place on May 4, 1970, when four students were shot and killed by members of the Ohio National Guard. Fuldheim went on the air and said, What is wrong with our country? We're killing our own children. Fuldheim took tremendous backlash for her comments and the idea that the four students were murdered. There were calls from viewers for her to resign from her position at WEWS, but she had the backing of station management, and she did not resign. 
Her third book, A Thousand Friends, was published by Doubleday and Company in 1974. In this one, she writes about a variety of people who came into her life as friends and interview subjects. As in her first book, I Laughed, I Cried, I Loved, she devotes an early chapter to Aunt Molly. In her final book, Three and a Half Husbands, published by Simon & Schuster in 1976, Aunt Molly gets all the attention. Three and a Half Husbands is the joy-filled account of Dorothy Fuldheim's Aunt Molly, whose liberated lifestyle was decades ahead of its time. Margaret Cousins said about the book, If you doubt the efficacy of feminine logic, that well-known combination of goodness, mulishness, and outrage, you have only to read Three and a Half Husbands. It is for everybody except dedicated members of the women's liberation movement. Cleveland Public Library classifies Three and a Half Husbands as fiction. All indications are that Aunt Molly was a real person, but that Three and a Half Husbands was fictionalized. Jerome Lawrence wrote that Aunt Molly was in the tradition of Auntie Mame, and Lawrence wrote the book for that play along with his partner Robert E. Lee, and Dolly Levi of Hello, Dolly. Dorothy Fuldheim had a daughter, Dorothy Jr., born in 1920, and a granddaughter, Hala, born in 1943. Hala was challenged at birth, reportedly by polio. Dorothy Jr. died of a heart attack at age 60 in 1980. Dorothy said, The sun will never shine as brightly as it once did for me. After Dorothy Jr.'s death, Hala went to live with Jean Malarvey, a longtime friend of Dorothy's. Hala lived to be 62 years old when she died in 2004 in Roan, West Virginia. When Dorothy Jr. died, Dorothy Fuldheim was sustained by the friendship and kindness of Sam and Maria Miller. Dorothy had known Sam Miller for decades. Patricia Mote wrote, She and Miller discovered a kinship, a common bond, forged by their intense fervor to use their abilities to make the world a better place, to aid those less fortunate, and to relieve the oppressed. Patricia M. Moat's biography of Dorothy Fuldheim, Dorothy Fuldheim, the first first lady of television news, was published in 1997. In that book, Moat quotes Dorothy's daughter, Dorothy Jr. She writes that Milton Fuldheim loved baseball. My father was a baseball addict, Dorothy once recalled to a reporter. I grew up going with him to Old League Park and the stadium. Dorothy Fuldheim's lack of knowledge about sports is legendary. So it's a bit ironic that when she insisted on going to the Middle East to report on the Six-Day War, and her boss at TV5 insisted she have a bodyguard, the bodyguard was Al Rosen. Rosen, the Hebrew hammer, and a Cleveland and Jewish sports legend, had a great playing career for the Cleveland Indians, a long and successful career afterwards as a baseball executive, and was a participant in the establishment of the Wahoo Club, the Booster Club of the Indians. In a previous episode, I asked, Where have you gone, Walter Matthau? I spoke about the film The Fortune Cookie, much of which was filmed on location in Cleveland. The opening and closing scenes take place at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. 
gone but not forgotten. Early in the final scene on the playing field of the old stadium, at the top of the image, you can see the auxiliary scoreboard at the lower edge of the second deck on the right field side of the park. There is an advertisement at either side of the scoreboard. The one on the left is for the yellow pages. The one on the right is partially cut off. The cut off portions are for Duke Beer and TV5. And below them, very clearly, are the words Dorothy Fuldheim. If you blink, you'll miss it. If you don't blink, you may still miss it. But keep an eye out for it. Drawing Card, a baseball novel by Dorothy Seymour Mills, has a brief mention of Fuldheim. At the end of the book, in a note on sources, Mrs. Mills wrote, Preparing this book also permitted me to use many of my own experiences of growing up in the Collinwood District of Cleveland, where I enjoyed living near Euclid Beach Park and Humphreys Field, attending Fenn College, now Cleveland State University, and Western Reserve University, now Case Western, as well as working during college at Halley Brothers Company. Despite medical advances, Father Time is still undefeated. The headline of the Sunday, July 29, 1984 issue of The Plain Dealer read, Full Time in Coma After Brain Surgery. She had suffered a stroke at the WEWS building on the corner of Euclid Avenue and East 30th Street. She was taken to Mount Sinai Medical Center. An emergency surgery was performed to remove a blood clot from her brain. Mount Sinai Hospital, dating back to the 1890s, opened its doors on East 105th Street in 1916. I was born there in 1959. The hospital closed in 2000, and it is gone without a trace. Dorothy Fuldheim lived another five-plus years, but she was not the same. She suffered another stroke in 1985, and another that took her life on November 3, 1989. She was 96 years old. There's one more book I have not mentioned with Dorothy Fuldheim on the cover. It's Cleveland TV Tales by Mike and Janice Oshevsky. It has a bit lighter tone than the other books I've mentioned. It's an entertaining look at many memorable and notable personalities of the first decades of Cleveland television, with one chapter devoted to Dorothy Fuldheim. By now, I hope it's apparent why we devoted an episode of Where Have You Gone to Dorothy Fuldheim. She was a pioneer of the mid-20th century. She was passionate about the spoken and written word, and she made a difference. Thanks again to Dr. Donna Halper for her insights regarding Dorothy Fuldheim. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwin Company.